Do not attempt to adjust your headsets. I've taken over the podcast. Brian, my dad, is with me. He put me in control to interview him. I'm Tim. I've been his son for the past 30 years. Some of my fondest memories as a kid were going rock hunting with my dad. So, Dad, to start off this interview, how many countries do you think you've been to? Uh, For professional work, you mean, or touristing? Yeah, let's just do let's just do professionally. Oh yeah, so, something like twenty, about twenty, about twenty. Okay, and one of them was Uzbekistan, which yep. is a country's name that I learned when it was when I was far too young. I mean, most kids don't know about Uzbekistan late until their <laughs> teen years. But mm-hmm. um, so, uh, just to set things up for your audience here i have a profound love of the world and it's largely due to your life's work i'm a journalist now specializing in global affairs and yeah that's due to your to your uh mining career now that's interesting interesting you you remember me studying the placemats when i was a kid the one with the the world map on it like i would move the plate aside (laughs) Oh my gosh, you would study those maps every day. Oh, I still would if I could. Yep. Now, Dad, you've <laughs> had me on, on previous episodes. Yeah. Oh, yeah. We did two on cryptocurrencies and one on mining in China. And I I have oh, a yeah. story yeah. to start things off Okay. here uh, from China. So this was mm-hmm. late last month. This took place in a village called Xilaoko, and it's in mm. Shandong province, about two hours away drive of where I lived in, in Qingdao, okay. the first place I lived in, in China. Yeah. yeah. So the 6th Geological Brigade of the Shandong Provincial Bureau of Geology <laughs> and Mineral mm-hmm. Resources, quite mm-hmm. the name, mm-hmm. they found 50 tons of gold. Now, that's quite a bit. <laughs> I mean, it was yeah. one sixth of the total gold mined in China last year. Uh, this this team is the most successful in the history of the People's Republic of China. Wow! For this discovery, they yeah. were given the title, and you, if, your colleagues, your your mining your mining heads, your geotechnical engineers, they would love this. They were called a heroic geological team with outstanding merit and selfless dedication. <laughs> Uh, selfless dedication. Wow! Now this this was given to them by a powerful national level body called the State Council, yeah. And it was awarded to them for contributions to mining, exploration, and expanding China's reserves. So, I mean, I I know that some of your some of your fellow miners and you yourself might really enjoy having a title like that. So it's yeah. Yeah, it it sounds like they need to have statues made to commemorate that. (laughs) (laughs) What an incredible find, too. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. To to kick things off here, I I wanted to tell your listeners about a little bit about what inspired you, really. Now, um, Grandma O had an inspiration on your life. Could do you briefly go through and, and discuss what kind of an influence she had on you as an early 
a young budding geotechnical engineer. <laughs> yeah, so it was even before I was a geotechnical engineer, but I had the opportunity to stay with Grandma Olita on a, at least two occasions. On one occasion, she got me my first fishing pole, which I still have, and I think you've used it. And almost every time we went there, whether I was staying there, we are just visiting, she'd have a pile of rocks. And she and her husband would go out collecting rocks, and also the next-door neighbor collected rocks. And so if she didn't want any of those rocks, she would either give them, let me look at them, or she would give them to my first cousins. And I, I got lots and lots of rocks. Probably there wasn't any of them that were real keepers since two people have already gone through them. But she, she uh, turned me into a rock hound for sure. And it's been something that's stuck with me my whole life. Well, you've had all your ducks in a row because after being a young, intrepid rock hound, you graduated from high school and immediately went to tech to uh, New Mexico Tech. Yeah. So how, how did you know that's what you wanted to do? <laughs> well, I, I have a cousin who's a mining engineer and he was in college uh, getting his mining engineering degree when I was a young teenager, or maybe even before I was a no, young teenager for sure. And I was chatting with him, and because I loved rocks, I told him I was going to be a geologist. And he looked at me and said, well, nothing wrong with being a geologist, but you might think about being an engineer. And he happened to be a mining engineer, and I thought mining was pretty cool. That's where you get all the rocks, right? And so <laughs> it just made sense for me to uh, think about a, uh, going to school to get a mining engineering degree. Now, Colorado School of Mines was just like an hour's drive away, probably longer than that, back when the speed limit was 55. So that would have been a logical place for me to go. And that's where I planned to go, except when I was in high school, there was a recruiting booth for New Mexico Tech, and they had postcards. And the picture on the postcard just looked amazing. And I thought, okay, I know where I'm going to go to school now. So I never even applied to the Colorado School of Mines, and I got a nice little scholarship from New Mexico Tech, so that made a nice little difference. That's interesting. Do you remember what was on the postcard? I think it was a picture of what's called M Mountain. So it's a tall mountain that kind of sits by itself with the letter M on it for mines. And it probably had the golf course in the foreground. And I played a lot of golf uh, in high school and before that. So that, that was a real um, attractor for me also. How interesting. And this cousin of yours, was uh, was this cousin related to you through Grandma O? Yeah, yeah. So we're first cousins. Yeah, so... Oh my gosh. Yeah. It's all yeah. linked together. Yep, yep. So she probably inspired your cousin to go into mining as well. That's very possible. Yeah, I hadn't even thought about that. I should ask him. Oh, interesting. So for uh, the listeners, there is a giant 
hunk of quartz sitting in my parents' house. This thing is massive. This thing is about the size of a Mini Cooper. Okay, not that big. It's about <laughs> <laughs> it's about the size of a of a let's say a toaster oven. It's all just it's two two quartz crystals kind of merged together. It's such a great find, and that was from Grandma uh, O. It was, yeah. It's a smoky quartz crystal. And it's, yeah, it's one of my most prized possessions, in part because it came from Grandma O, but in part also because it's just a really cool rock. So, and what a cool find it was for her. She found it out yeah. there in Ure, as, as uh, I recall correctly. I mean, I, I could only imagine, I remember her being very small, so I could only imagine yeah. this tiny woman digging up this gigantic crystal. Yeah, yeah, for sure. For sure, yeah. <laughs> oh, wonderful. I, I didn't know yeah. this about you. So after you graduated from tech, you went from going to different coal mines in our humble state of Colorado to mm -hmm. traveling the world as a consultant. I'm, I'm uh, missing, missing a couple years of, right. of work that you went into that, but did you mm -hmm. expect any of that to happen? No. Um, so when I graduated mining was in an extreme down cycle so i stayed in school taking a few classes uh toward my second bachelor's degree and just before i got my second bachelor's uh a fellow alumni from new mexico tech came to recruit and he was working for the u.s bureau of mines in denver and he hired me, so that's how I got my first job, and that's where you said coal mining. So yeah, we visited lots of coal mines in western Colorado and in Utah. Oh, and Utah as well. Yeah, yeah. Let's see. And then and then from there, um, you went on to work for KP, if I'm not mistaken, right? Yeah, right. One of the guys that I worked with at the Bureau of Mines a guy named Bill, he was telling me that he got this job as a geotechnical engineer and they're working on tailings and he's telling me about all this specialty site investigation stuff that they're doing and it, I, I didn't even know half of the stuff that he was talking about. But he and I worked together on a few projects with the Bureau of Mines and he actually got me an interview a little while later at KP. and. And that's, yeah, that's where the international travel started. How wonderful. I'm, I'm interested. So was Uzbekistan your first project abroad? Hmm. I think it probably was. I, I could be mistaken, but I'd, I'd worked a lot in the Western U.S., uh, prior to that, but you could be right. That could be the first time I traveled internationally for work. I kind of remember this now, um, visiting you when you were working in Elko. So you were obviously yeah. in Elko before then as well. Quite a, quite often, yeah. Which I got to say, in my 30 years of life, Elko has not changed one bit. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, they can put up some new buildings and they can... They can redo facades on buildings, but it it hasn't changed. It's it's gonna be 
the same Elko that we know and love. I think I hope I hope forever. I hope so too. What a what a great place. What a great yeah. place. Now, so you started doing work in Uzbekistan. Eventually, you went to South Africa, and we moved out to Nevada as well. Yeah. You've also been to an endless number of mine sites on visits around the world working on all of these locations with their unique circumstances uh, unique circumstances and challenges you must have learned a great deal of knowledge about mining as a global industry so what what about working all around the world has informed you in your in your current work well, that that's a really good question. And of course, I don't know a whole bunch about mining itself. I know more about uh, mine waste management and heap leach facilities, and I know a teeny tiny bit about mining. But I, I, there's no way I'd be the person I am today if I didn't have all those travels. You know, it's the same same with my education. I wouldn't be the same person without the education. But it's just the exposure to the different ways of doing things and the different teams of people uh, you mentioned South Africa and I had quite a few operations that I was in charge of there and that made me grow up professionally really fast wow okay kind of going through all of these projects do you have a, a pet favorite by chance <laughs> Well, I, I suppose the one that I learned the most from was the uh, the Vitook tailings facility just outside of Johannesburg, and it was a it's called a cyclone sand dam. It was very large. Uh, it was also a remining project, so there was two tailings facilities. One was being remined, and then that was being reprocessed and put into the newer tailings facility so the newer tailings facility was something like 90 meters high had 22 million cubic meters of water on top of it and there was a population pretty close and it's funny i just looked on google earth and people keep on moving close to this tailings dam i don't think it'd be my favorite place to live in I mean, the, the risks, um, you know, it's not in jeopardy of, of any catastrophe, but there is a risk in living right next to a tailings facility. But that one, we, we called it Ergo, and it wasn't really Ergo. That was um, the wrong name for it. Brackpan or Vithook is what most people call it. That one had so many different growing pains. There was... Um, deformation there was a sinkhole there was all sorts of things that kept me awake at night and kept me in front of uh, a boardroom full of very concerned engineers and managers and it it taught me a lot uh, that one like i say you know it's more like one that i love to hate or hate to love i'm not really sure which one of those it is but it it really gave me a lot of amazing professional experiences that most people wouldn't have in their entire career and I got it in about a three-year period how interesting I, I mean I, I heard 
about Ergo when I was a kid. That name sort sort of rings a bell, but yeah, I'm I'm more surprised that you don't want to live by it. <laughs> you can look out every morning and be like, ah, yes, I remember. Yeah, yeah. Well, and uh, when you kids were young and would be traveling somewhere and would come across this amazing looking valley, and I'd be talking about how pretty it was, and I said, you know what would make it even better? What? What? A tailings dam. And of course, you two, you, two, you two kids would go, Dad, Dad. You know what that beautiful, untouched wilderness needs? <laughs> well, and I also I also have to inform your listeners, I think that it's my duty as a journalist. So every time we would be on a road trip and we drove by, I, I'm sure that we've, drove, we've driven by Ergo. And all these, all these different tailings dams, you would point out the window and see, say, see kids, that, that's my tailings dam. You'd be so proud of it. Yeah. We'd, of course, not really have the eye for aesthetics, not knowing <laughs> what exactly went into it. So it was kind of, yeah. kind of difficult. Yeah. But, yep, you got, you got a lot of big piles of dirt out there, Dad. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I, th I think you saw the one in Silverton here in Colorado. And that one is kind of a special one to me. Not only is the setting really amazing, but I did practically everything to design the last rays for that facility. So I did wow. the, I did the site investigation. I drew most of the design drawings. I wrote most of the report. Uh, I, I was out there for a bunch of in-situ testing and then I wrote the construction specifications for it and then I spent the summer watching after the construction so I did the field and lab testing and the construction oversight and then I wrote the um, record of construction report for it as well my gosh yeah I mean that that's a lot of work and what a beautiful place to do it all in yeah yeah it was it was a pleasure to be able to work there you probably did some rock hunting in your extracurricular times right <laughs> i did yeah i found some really pretty amazing crystals uh along some of my walks there and i had a really nice time uh looking looking for others but i did find a nice little pocket that I kept on developing, and it was it was a lot of fun. Uh, always a rock hunter. Always yep. a rock hunter. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was it was just really nice to get out and see the outdoors. You know, all these historic um, mining trails, donkey trails, and and little uh, wagon paths and stuff like that. And one time I happened to be out, and there was a. Uh, bull elk with three cows and it happened to be hunting season and I took a Jeez. picture of this amazing bull when it was just like right in front of me and my next door neighbor actually harvested that same bull probably the very next day and I was so excited to, to get the film developed so I could show him the picture and it was an old fashioned well it wasn't old fashioned at the time but it was a film camera and I thought I wound the the film back into the little canister, but I hadn't. 
and so the pictures oh, that I was no. most hoping to, yeah, they, they they weren't able to develop them because they got soaked up in the sunshine. Oh my gosh! Yeah, yeah. Wow, that's so funny. You know, you've you've done a lot of contributions to your field through projects around the world, but a more recent development has been your contributions to academia. And hmm. I'm interested in knowing what part of your work do you feel is gaining the most traction within your field right now? Well, maybe I need a little more help on this, because what do you mean by academia? Well, you're going around to different conferences, submitting papers. Ah, uh, okay, yeah. What's yeah. garnering the most interest of your work? Yeah. So that just on that topic, I would highly recommend all engineers write papers and present them at conferences. It really does help your reputation and and keep doing it. Don't just do it one time. A lot of times if you have an interesting project, you can get one of the clients to be a co-author on it and it's easier to publish that way. So I'd, I'd highly recommend that. So right now, uh, two things that I'm really interested in, one is filtered tailings. Uh, which some people think is the end all for tailings, either filtered filtered tailings or dye, and that's that's not correct. It's not right for every place, and it can be a very difficult thing to accomplish. The other one is something that I'd been working on for a few years, and it's coming back a little bit, is blended waste rock and tailings, and this is a really interesting one because. If you the tailings are liquefiable, they're a loose, oftentimes a loose, muddy kind of a deposit. Waste rock is strong and durable, so if you can mix the two, so you basically hide the tailings into the empty spaces in the waste rock, you can you can make this mixture as strong as waste rock, but it also has a another beneficial property that it has a low permeability, which means air can't get through it which means that you can't have acid rock drainage and so the two of those things combined low acid rock drainage and high shear strength make it a really um, interesting material and i think the blended tailings and waste rock is going to be on par one of these days with filtered tailings well i, I mean a blended waste it doesn't sound like a good smoothie. I'm just going to throw that out there. <laughs> no, definitely not a good smoothie. A bit too chewy for my yeah, taste. Yeah, little, little on the chunky side, for sure. <laughs> well, I'm glad it's making a comeback there for you. I mean, yeah. you, you've, you've told me about this earlier, but there is this continual advancement within the field of waste mining and tailings dams that I, I really wasn't aware of. I just thought that it was a, you know, a big clump of dirt that, that you, you put a bunch of waste into and yeah, boom, you get out of war. But right, right. there's a, there's quite a lot going on more in the, in the fields of theoretical reaching on the applied side of things. So in our last section here of our discussion, I'd like to bring up the future of, of tailings. 
in my name. So what would you what would you think looking back? First, let's start by looking back how the field has changed since you first began. Well, this this seems like a very um ancient thing to have occurred, but up until about the 1980s, people were uh, letting their tailings just go down rivers. That wasn't the most common thing to do, but it was still being done. You know, there was no environmental containment. The, the water just took it wherever it, the water went. And I, I think part of that is because the American West used to be a really big, vast, and open space, and now it doesn't seem so vast and open. Of course, you know, environmental concerns are fairly recent, and so th there's been a lot of advances in um, geosynthetics, for example, like geomembranes. There's been equipment advances. Uh, to work clay into better, lower permeability materials. Um, it, it's it's been interesting, even just in my the length of my career, how we've come almost globally to be much more aware of environmental and social concerns than uh, even just a few decades ago. It's really interesting. I mean, it, looking forward in the coming decades, these trends will surely continue as uh, awareness of ecological issues become more widespread and yep. we understand kind of more about how we pollute our, our environments through things like mining. So speaking of that, how how will things change in the in the coming decades? Do you feel from your vantage point of your expertise? Well, this is a hard question, and I I, I was just invited to be a keynote lecturer at a conference in South Africa, and the the uh, goal of that conference is to talk about waste minimization, and waste minimization is something that we could definitely make make some strides toward so for example there's ore sorting devices and, and processes where in in some cases you can tell the ore from the waste just by the color um in in some cases it's more complicated than that so you you could imagine if you were in a third world nation and you've got ore going past on a conveyor you, you might have people there taking off any rocks that didn't match the colored um, criteria but that there's actually yeah but but there's actually machines that can do that and and there is some advances being made there another way to look at it is to improve uh, the designation of waste versus ore in the pit when you're blasting so normally what happens is you drill a blast hole and there's cuttings from that and you have a whole pattern of these blast holes. So you take, you take a sample of each one of those cuttings to the metallurgy lab and you find out is it waste or is it ore. 
And then you can kind of put a dotted line to say, okay, this is where the waste is, this is where the ore is. And so you can tell the shovels which which one this is. You put put out little flags and stuff like that. So you can imagine if if you had your blast holes on a tighter grid, you'd be able to refine a little bit better where the waste and the ore changes from one to the other. So with a tighter blast pattern and lower powder in each one and you know it, it might be it, it might make financial um gains by doing that and then maybe it maybe it doesn't so you, you've that's uh, uh some math that a person would have to work out to see if it makes sense but there's 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 ways to reduce the waste so that's that's one of the things and the other uh, areas is to make it safer and so we've got a new global standard we call it GISTM and so that's that's helping especially with the awareness what also happened uh, a few years ago there was three important tailings dam failures that um, got the, the world more sensitive to tailings management and also got owners and places like the developers of the GISTM to take more concern and that's that's helping a little bit there's some uh, educational programs at different universities that are offering short courses on tailings management that seems to be making a big impact so I, I think there's been some fundamental changes just in the last few years with tailings um, disposal practices. So I, I, I think we're just starting to see the effects of that. So it'll probably continue to improve over the next several years. How interesting. How interesting. Yeah. Very yeah. Cool. yeah. Well, you know, it, um, that about rounds it out here. I, I think we okay. covered you quite a bit here from your early beginnings as a young rock hound in Grandma O's to <laughs> looking at ways to better protect the environment as we continue to mine for ore. So this has been yeah. a really interesting discussion, Dad, and I'll now hand control of the podcast back to you. <laughs> it's been it's been a lot of fun. So this is the the first time we've had a, a reversal of roles. So. That was fun, and you were you were good at asking the question, so I enjoyed that too. Thank you. I now know even less of uh, what you do. <laughs> well, <laughs> it's been informative. Maybe, maybe we'll have another one of these podcasts one of these days. We'll need a part two of of just a you know survey course level understanding. But yeah, <laughs> that sounds good. That sounds good. Well, Tim, I know you are. Uh, busy fellow so i will let you get back to your day but i really appreciate it and i'll let you know when this podcast goes live perfect can't wait to hear it thank you dad all right thanks tim and we'll we'll, we'll see you so one of these days one of these days <laughs> okay all right bye-bye Well, that's it. I'm Brian, and this is Behind the Scenes with Brian.
Until next time, keep on rocking.